This podcast is brought to you by the South China Morning Post. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Behind the Story. I'm Yondan Latu, the chief news editor here at the South China Morning Post and host of Talking Post, our flagship video series where I interview global newsmakers and personalities. You're about to hear from astrophysicist Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Tyson is one of the most recognizable and renowned science communicators in the world. He is famous for combining wisdom and wit to break down complex ideas for the masses. And I had the privilege of interviewing him via video link from New York recently for an episode of Talking Post. It was a fascinating conversation about China's space program, how competition between China and the US will drive innovation and investment in space. And yes, we do of course talk about UFOs. So here it is, the extended interview with Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson. Okay, Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson, all the way from New York City by video link. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a real privilege. Well, thank you for your interest in what I do. Neil, uh, let's talk about China for a bit. Our audience in this part of the world would be very interested in your take on China's uh, scientific advances, its uh, space program, its technological advances. What do you think of it so far? Are you impressed? Very much so, especially the, the rate at which it has unfolded. If you look at China 10 years ago, 20, especially 30 years ago, you could see, as they say, the writing on the wall, right? The economy was building. There were decisions made to allocate monies in places that would best serve the growth of science, technology, STEM fields in particular. I visited China 20 years ago as part of a government commission to study the conditions around the world related to the aerospace industry, not only commercial aerospace, but civilian, commercial, and military aerospace, right? And we went to China and we visited the offices of industry leaders and political leaders. I'm only slightly exaggerating when I say I looked at their hands and on their ring fingers were the graduation rings from MIT hmm. uh, here in the United States from Caltech. So these were American trained engineers who were Chinese, American trained, went back to China to start implementing and bringing to bear what role innovations in science and technology would play on the future of their economy. What I predicted, and I haven't followed up on this, but I don't see why isn't now happening this way. What I thought to myself was, all right, they didn't have the infrastructure to train this next generation of people in China at the time. So they sent them all to the United States and then they return. Before that, other countries, their best and brightest would come to the United States and stay. Okay. Because we had opportunities and their home countries didn't. So what's the transition? You send people here and then they return to new opportunities. What's the third rung in that ladder, they create the opportunity, even the educational opportunities domestically, and they never send them to the United States right? because we spent decades where our graduate programs in STEM fields were completely dominated by foreign nationals, mostly from Asia and also some from Africa and Asia is all of Asia. So India, China, Pakistan. And so I think all things considered, that it's a good thing that countries value STEM fields and they don't all just get sucked out. I mean, I, I, for science, it's a good thing. As speaking as an American, 
I want everybody smart people. <laughs> That's just being selfish. But but thinking globally, the more places in the world that can participate in what role STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, and math play in the growth of economies that can only be good for the world. Did you say you uh, the last time you were in China was uh, 20 years ago? Yeah, uh, 2002. So since the last time you visited China, which is 20 years ago, you, you do realize that the uh, scientific advances, uh, society advances have been exponential, right, in terms of growth and everything else. So do you see, uh, given the huge leaps that China has made, now, right now the, you know, there, there is a rivalry on, uh, with the US and uh, with uh, other Western powers in this aspect as well, and a lot of it also drives the conflict. So do you, do you see this as something that's going to exacerbate, worsen uh, the conflicts uh, and the geopolitical tensions between these two countries? Or could they be used to, like you're talking about in the old days, where you, f you leverage off each other, you, you take advantage through cooperation and friendship? When you have investments, what we have seen, basically since the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, when you do this, things grow and there's there's informational access to advances. So in other words, if I know what you have done, I can stand on your shoulders and do something even more. If I don't know what you've done, I have to invent what you did from scratch. And that is a big drag on the progress that would otherwise unfold in a civilization. So the fact that China grew exponentially over that period, I expect that of any country that invests in the way China has. The United States has grown exponentially and continues to, okay, in, in certain sectors, not all sectors. So I was not surprised, A. B, yeah, they were going exponentially in 2002. I looked at, in, in Beijing, the, the skyline were all cranes, the, those cranes that look like they're knitting the building as you mm -hmm. go up. <laughs> There's two cranes that stick out. And um, so the entire skyline was cranes. And I had read about the big boulevard filled with bicycles. And I get there, again, this is 2002, and there's still some bicycles, but now they're BMWs and Mercedes and, and all manner of automobile traffic. So I, it was exponential then, okay? So yes, what the fascinating thing about an exponential is that no matter where you are on the curve, it looks like to you that all the greatest advancements have just occurred in the last couple of years. Anywhere on an exponential curve looks that way when it's all exponential. So yes, and so one of the most impressive things to me about China is when they say they're gonna do something, they do it. Uh, we're, gonna have, we're gonna put an astronaut in space in the next two years, okay? Two years and two months later, you know, okay. <laughs> All right, it took him a little longer than the goal, whatever, but it happened. And the, the first Taikonaut is a national hero. And yeah, we're going to build our own space. You didn't invite us to the International Space Station. Mm -hmm. We'll build our own space station. Sure enough, there it is. We're going to go to the moon. They went to the moon. We're going to put astronauts on the moon. Oh, by the way, we weren't thinking, of, we, the United States, weren't thinking about going to the moon for 50 years. All right, we were last on the moon in 1972. And then all of a sudden, hey, let's go back to the moon. Oh, well, why now? Why didn't you think this in 1975 or 1980 or 1990? Oh, oh, well, we had other priorities then. All of a sudden, we're going back to the moon. 
let's let's not fool ourselves. China is going back to the moon. You want to think of it as a new high ground? Then do so. So yes, China in this way is kind of, I don't want to call them a, 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 an enemy, but a frenemy. Do you know that word, a friend mm-hmm. enemy, mm-hmm. right? Uh, we were huge business partners, right? And that may rule the day in the end, right? You, you, you can't invade people who who owe you money, right? Because <laughs> what, what does that do? <laughs> so, so it may be that that prevents levels of warfare that the warmongers might be speaking of, uh, particularly with tensions over Taiwan. But all I can say is having other countries compete in a technological space, no pun intended, can have multiple outcomes. It could stimulate even more innovation because you don't want to be beat by somebody else, okay? In ways that cooperation might not. Competition stirs juice. Again, I put on my sort of military hat here. Competition stirs innovation as no other force operating. Whereas cooperation, okay, can stimulate innovation, but without the competitive edge to it, it may just be a little slower, okay? Uh, that's all. And, but the evidence of this, which is very hard to admit, the evidence of this is for every war, major war that has happened in the industrial revolution, huge advances in technology came about from it. It's the I don't want to die driver of innovation. And no one admits to that because it involves war. And war is tragic and should never happen. But the cosmic realities of it are that it's what drives innovation. How big is the marketplace now of GPS-driven commerce? The Uber, FedEx, uh, UPS tracking packages. You have all of this. All of this comes about because the U.S. military, the Air Force, now Space Force, designed and built a system of satellites that enables you to know where you are on Earth with very high precision. Why? It guides missiles. The missile doesn't have to guide itself. It is controlled by coordinates that it gets from space. Highly accurate coordinates. Oh, by the way, it'll help me avoid traffic getting the shortest route to my grandmother's house for the next holiday. All right? Oh, I can swipe right or left and find a willing mating partner within 200 meters of where I'm standing. No, I don't think they had that in mind. If they did, that would be pretty crazy, the designers of GPS. But this is what has happened because of it. A major force in the modern economy. And so, anyway, to make a long story short, I agree, they're growing exponentially and will continue to grow. I think the United States views China as a competitor in the space achievement areas. China already has the largest telescope in the world while ours collapsed under structural failure. I'm talking about the FAST telescope in the Guizhou province of China. I visited that and filmed there for our Cosmos series. And the Arecibo radio telescope in Puerto Rico has collapsed structurally. So we don't even have a big radio telescope anymore, such as what is in China. So we know this. And and as a scientist, I don't care who does it. It's a reminder, it's a wake-up call to Americans that 
if you choose to not do something and value it, and it's in the realm of science and technology, that doesn't mean it won't happen in the world. Other countries that do value it will do it. And China leads the world in entangled quantum particle distances, okay? This is the famous quantum entanglement that we hear about. And what is the future of that? We don't know yet, but China's leading the way. China's leading the way, you mean, uh, whether it's a race or a competition or not? Do you see it as ahead right now? Well, in, not in all sectors, but in certain key sectors, yes. Here's how I'll put it. Here's the simplest way to put it. The United States has stupefying resources, okay? We remain the largest economy in the world, all right? And as long as that's true, you have access to resources. Resources is code for money, but also ability to make things happen if everybody wants to make it happen together. However, the history of this exercise shows that we are less proactive than we are reactive, pure and simple. We as a country remember our golden age of space exploration as being pioneers in space with the Apollo program. However, if you go back, I wrote a whole book on this. You go back and you say, well, okay, who was the first in space? It was Russia, the Soviet Union with Sputnik. Uh, who, who put up the first uh, non-human animal? It was Russia, the, the, the dog Laika. Who put up the first human? Russia with Uri Gagarin. Who put up the first woman? It was Russia, the first black person. It was Russia with, with a Cuban, a dark-skinned person. The, Russia beat us in practically every metric of space exploration. And they were our sworn enemies in the Cold War. And we said, we can't have this happen. President Kennedy, in a speech in 1962 to Congress, uttered these words. If the events of recent weeks, this is Yuri Gagarin coming out of orbit. We didn't yet have a ship that could launch a human that wasn't blowing up on the launch pad. But he didn't even utter his name. He said, if the events of recent weeks are any indication Of the event of the impact of this adventure on minds every on men everywhere then we need to show the world the path of freedom over the path of tyranny that was the battle cry against the godless communists and then he said oh let's put a man on the moon and bring him safely to earth so that's the part we remember that second part but that's not what got everybody to write the checks it was the fear factor the I don't want to die factor. It's the we're better than they are factor that jump-started our space program. We didn't have NASA until a year and a day after Sputnik, which coincides with the same week I was born, by the way. I'm exactly the same age as NASA, wow. coincidentally. So we were reactive and landed on the moon. So we react really well. But for, in terms of proactive, not, uh, in my read of history, not so much. Neil, uh, let's talk about this dangerous state of world affairs right now, the mess that we are in. You, you, you know, it's all to do with climate change, poverty, uh, refugees, war. And now you've got uh, global powers and global leaders openly threatening to launch nuclear attacks against each other. Highly, highly dangerous developments, highly, highly dangerous talk. What's your take on all this? How do you see all this? Why are we in such a polarized state in world affairs right now? Let me just preface this by saying my comments and observations 
do not come about because I'm some pundit on world affairs. They come about because I'm a scientist who sees world affairs through the lens of a scientist. So that means there are certain facts that matter, certain circumstances that we should be and could be thinking about and perhaps are not. When your opinions are so strongly held that you no longer have the capacity to hear how what other people think or feel, that is the recipe for not only simple polarization, but in the limit, all out warfare, right? And holding aside whether you listen to other people, if your opinion is not subject to rational analysis, to objective truths, these would be truths established by the methods and tools of science. What makes objective truths so crucial is that they are true since they've been established by repeated experiment they are true whether or not you believe in them. That's what's extraordinary. And yet we have people who are formulating opinions not based in objective truth, and they want to force those opinions on others. And so that's a recipe for the unraveling of an informed civilization. So that's just, I just want to open with that comment. Second, at any given time, this is an old saying, your biggest problem is your biggest problem right? If you have a hangnail on your finger, you say, oh my gosh, I've had this hangnail for two to eight. What, what is it? Okay, that's your biggest problem. But if you had a cancer diagnosis, you're not thinking about your hangnail, okay? This is pretty obvious fact about how we as humans interact with our lives and, and circumstances. So I can tell you without hesitation, there is nothing uniquely bad about today, even within the past 70 years, it has been much, much worse. Much, 70, 80 years, much worse during the Second World War. I don't know, did you do the math on this? During the Second World War, between 1939 and 1945, 1,000 people were killed per hour in that war per hour. Yet, but the headlines were, oh, we advanced on a beach or on the front or, or we took the, retook the city. And you're not looking at the death toll until afterwards, right? And then the Second World War was followed by the Cold War a few years later, where the entire world was held hostage by threats of total nuclear annihilation. Now, very few people today who are in charge or who are influencing culture were alive back then so to them this is the worst time ever and and i'm saying wow we're not killing a thousand people per day we don't have countless refugees crossing borders but war refugees no we don't they're still happening but the numbers are greatly reduced so i like keeping things in context and that's a context okay so now What's going on? What I see here is a major emergence of sort of tribalistic thinking. And do we blame individuals for that? I don't know. We're humans, right? If you look at our evolutionary past, 
we were tribes, right? We there's a tribe of us, and we use the same watering hole, and and we look like each other, and we have access to the to the herd and the resources, and then someone else comes over the horizon with their tribe, and oh my gosh, they're going to compete for our resources. I think it's completely natural, in the interest of your own survival, to think tribally. That doesn't mean we should, even if it's evolutionarily natural. Because what is civilization, if not a set of agreed upon rules that elevate us from our basal behaviors that would exist without it? So what I see today, sorry, I'm talking so long here, but you, you, you asked me, you dropped a huge question in my lap. So, <laughs> Nothing you can't so handle. I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to unpack it here. So what I think we did unwittingly by creating an internet and the social media layered upon it, what we ended up doing, and I don't think anyone saw this coming, is no matter what I value, if I value guns, if I value, if I think earth is flat, if I think no matter what your ideas are, you can just Google search for other people who have exactly those views and you will find them and you will create a chat group and you will think that there's something genuinely legitimate about your ideas when previously you were just sort of the crazy person in the village. Now you find every other crazy person in all the other villages. You come together and you say, we can't be all that crazy. You know, of course the world is flat. And so the tribal cutting through civilization, it's not who looks like me necessarily, it's who thinks like me and who believes the same things I do, no matter where you are in the world. That has tribalized this world on a level I think no one saw coming. But at the same time, uh, this, this tribal behavior, it's no longer people armed with uh, sticks and stones and clubs. We're talking about tribal behavior now on national levels where superpowers armed to the teeth with weapons to destroy the world many times over. And uh, do you still find it, okay, this is just a pattern in history, it, it, it rises and subsides? Or have we, is this particular one especially worrying? given the potential. You have a war going on in Ukraine right now. Yeah, so I'm gonna take a slightly, I'm gonna put on my military hat for the moment. And so why do I even have a military hat? Uh, I spent a few years uh, as an advisor on a board of the Pentagon. So that was kind of a baptism into sort of this kind of thinking. Uh, I can t I'll say a couple of things that are generally not, uh, people don't think about typically, and that's, if we look at nuclear weapons coming out of the Second World War, they were, and even into the Cold War, especially into the Cold War, they were blunt instruments of warfare, okay? It's, they will flatten a city. That's what they do. That's all they do, okay? If you're a military commander and you are, you want to, sort of invade and take over a country, are you going to flatten every city with a nuclear weapon and take out the infrastructure, the, 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 the power grid, the transportation? Really? And then you walk into the country and say, I win, and now you have landmass in complete rubble and ruins? What has happened over the decades 
especially with global uh, positioning satellites that give you coordinates, is that precision weaponry has risen up as an alternative to completely flattening a city. So what you really want to do is take out your opponent's ability to wage war. How would you do that? Well, there's a military base here. Just take out the base. You take out the, the command and control. You don't need a nuclear weapon to do that. In fact, there's something called tactical nuclear weapons, which are much smaller, much more targeted. Yeah, they're deadlier than a normal missile, but they, they're, they're not designed to flatten an entire neighborhood or city. They're, 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 they're designed to serve a military purpose. So back to your question of total nuclear annihilation, uh, you'd have to be a very crazy military leader to, to have that as your objective in modern times, given your other tools available in the waging of war. So that was my military hat that I put on there. But when I put on my cosmic perspective hat, here's what I want to have happen, okay? I mean, this is, you know, this is, it sounds almost like a joke, but I'm deeply serious about it. We get Elon Musk to create a space bus, okay? I know that sounds weird, but we have an Airbus, which is a whole company that makes airplanes. <laughs> Let's make a space bus. And in this space bus, maybe it can hold 30, 50 people. We get all the warring world leaders and put them on this rocket, <laughs> send them into space and have them look back at Earth. Send them not just in Earth orbit, because that's not very far away, as much as people praise that. Send them to the moon when the entire Earth is visible there to them, floating alone in the darkness of space. And they will see Earth as nature intended with oceans and land and clouds. And there is no trace of the color-coded countries that we all were trained on in school where, okay, this country is red, blue, green, yeah. Oh, and there's a line there, don't cross that line, and why are we shown this? Oh, I know why. It's so that you, from early on, you know who your enemies are and who your friends are. This, this training, this tribal training begins early. And it has nothing to do with what Earth looks like from space. So I'd like to think, maybe I'm delusional here, that you send our world leaders up there and they see Earth as it is naturally, rather than as humans have carved it, and they return to Earth, they'll be at the table the next day, shaking hands, figuring out ways that we can all become better shepherds of our own species. And on top of that, better shepherds of our own planet, our life-sustaining planet, so that we go into the future holding hands rather than raising arms that are your physical arms to shake a hand rather than military arms. That's a, that's a future that I think is not impossible to imagine. So you have this new book out and it's doing very well. Everyone's very interested in it. Uh, Starry Messenger, Cosmic Perspectives on Civilization. Uh, just let me read uh, this from the introduction. I think this has been read out to you before, but I will do it all the same. I think it's very relevant. So Starry Messenger is a wake up call to civilization. People no longer know who or what to trust. We sow hatred of others fueled by what we think is true or what we want to be true. 
without regard to what is true. So cultural and political factions battle for the souls of communities and of nations. We've lost all sight of what distinguishes facts from opinions. So who or what is to blame? Uh, Twitter. Twitter is, is a, can be and often is a cesspool. It's the leading cesspool among social media cesspools. So let me just start with that. But it's a cesspool because we turned it into that. It didn't start out that way. It was a quite innocent way to just share your day's thoughts. So, but here's what happens. People see the power of having ideas. And then, like you said, it gains a following no matter how regressive it may be. So I, as an educator, I don't want to blame media, okay? Because we create media. We engage media. And to say, well, that's the problem, it allows you, if you think that way, it allows you to not take deeper, more complex blame for what's happening. And as an educator, I look at the education system. And when I do so, I see a portfolio of courses that are offered at any given year, doesn't matter. And you go in and you learn information, okay? And the textbook has the, the vocabulary words are in boldface, and those are the ones you memorize, and then you take an exam at the end, and then you're done. Then you go on to the next class. And I ask you, is there any point in this sequence where you're trained how to think, how to process information rather than just memorize it? how to analyze a claim made by someone, how to ask questions. Is there any place where we're taught how to think critically about information, about anything that's presented in front of you? The answer is no. On top of that, are there any, I can only speak for the United States here. I'm not entirely sure about other school systems around the world, but in the United States, at no time, between age five and 18, are you required to take any class on probability and statistics? Yet so many decisions we make, we become victims of our ignorance of probability and statistics. This is a branch of math that is operating every day of our lives in practically every decision we make. Do you, uh, do you t accept the vaccine? Are you going to wear a seatbelt? Are you going to cross against the light, the street? Are you going to um, protect the wall outlets from your newborn children? Are you, statistics can inform those decisions. But people say, well, I'll just do what they feel like. And that's a problem. One other thing, one last point is somehow the joy of learning is sucked out of us in the school system. And how do you know that's true? Because graduation day, people are celebrating. They, you know, they run, run down the steps and toss their books, I'm exaggerating just a little bit here, toss their papers in the air and say, school's out. Um, the, you know, the, the rock performer Alice Cooper has a song. School's, School's out, out forever. For the summer. Forever. School's out forever. It's, <laughs> it's an anthem for the end of school. And I thought to myself, you're celebrating no longer having to learn. Oh, my God. What does that even mean? 
you, do you now you just want to ossify into this <laughs> state of mind at age 18 if you stop at high school and age 21 22 if you stop at college really and now you're glad and now that's you for the rest of your life so what needs to happen in the school is maybe forget the syllabus as always can see put in there things that make it fun to learn yes exactly so that your so that your curiosity is stoked and so that you're sad at the end of the school day you're sad on graduation and then the word commencement would then take on the literal meaning of this is the beginning of the rest of the life where you have become a lifelong learner because you're trained how to learn and how to stay curious about what you do not yet know because you will spend many more years not in school than you did in school and so if that were the case if, if i were sort of pope of school systems that's the school system i would put into place and if we had that nobody coming out on the other side would say yeah earth is flat that would that would not happen okay there was to be no place in your brain to embrace such an absurd claim and if anyone managed to eke through and think that way that they wouldn't survive five minutes they would be isolated on an island because no one would talk it's like you know, i don't have time for people who don't know how to think about the world who don't know how to sift what you want to be true from what is true as that opening sentence conveyed I wish you'd been a teacher at my school. Uh, I think it would have been much more interesting. By the way, uh, I grew up on... Well, you uh, turned out okay. So I don't exactly. <laughs> I, I wanted to add to that. I, I grew up on uh, Pink Floyd and uh, Another Brick in the Wall. We don't need no education. And I still turn out to be a fine young man. So... Yes, okay, right, right. Because you, you shouldn't blame the media. That's, that's my point. That's right. right. If you are equipped coming up, then you can play the pinball machine, the video game. You can be exposed to violence. Read you comics. Hear, read comics. Could come all of this. You can be exposed to all of that, and then it's entertainment. It's it's a it's a fun artistic diversion. Some might be weird. You can rank and 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 award them or not. But you are, if I may use the word, inoculated against fuzzy thinking. You are protected from always all regressive thoughts that would unravel civilization as we've so carefully built over the last 10,000 years. You know, people placing extreme feelings before basic facts. Uh, we saw that uh, uh, manifesting during this uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic, right? And it reached a stage where uh, it's, it's literally like many people have lost their faith in science. And not just that, there's a backlash against science. I find it a bit unfair on uh, for scientists like uh, you. Well, you weren't involved in the COVID part, like uh, Dr. Fauci was, right? But uh, science is, is a developing thing, isn't it? Uh, you, you know, you you you're, you come across new facts, and you have to change your mind. Uh, you, you you say something in 1960, and then in 1980 you're saying something else. You can't be held accountable for 1960, right? But then there's there's this mob now that lynches you, saying, "But you said this in 1960, so I don't trust you anymore on anything." Must be yeah, hugely that's frustrating. Because, that's, that's because they don't understand what science is and how and why it works. Again, it's not their fault. It's not that's not taught in school. Uh, so I, I try to address it in the science and society chapter where it's pretty clear and easy to convey. And that is when there is a scientific result that comes forth and it has been 
tested and retested and verified by multiple sources in multiple ways, it becomes part of our portfolio of objective truths in the world. There will not be a later experiment to show that it's false, okay? That's just not how, it's why science exists at all, because we can establish objective truths. On the frontier, we don't ever agree with each other. That's the whole point. The bleeding edge between what is known and unknown in this world gets contested at scientific conferences. There are some people, and I've seen it, journalists, especially among them, who will write an article saying, uh, uh, this new idea may send scientists back to the drawing board and, and conflicts with their cherished theories. This is this is a fiction that they're writing here. Okay, we're, we're, first, we're, we're absolute worst, aren't we, journalists? Yeah, but, but, yeah, so the first, we're always at the drawing board, first of all. We're not just sitting back with our legs up on the table, basking in all that we know. <laughs> we're always at the drawing board, A. B, when an idea gets overturned, it's because the idea was never justified to begin with. But the press loves talking about new ideas. And, and it gets presented like it's true without saying, well, this hasn't been. Where is the sentence? This has not yet been verified. This is this is this one lone researcher. OK, and because they want to be the first to break the story and then they get credit for talking about it before it got verified. And if the if the result becomes a falsified, you don't see the follow up in the news. Yeah, we were first out of the gate on this, but we were wrong. The press doesn't do that. And so. The communication channels are not operating sensibly with regard to this. So now with COVID, which you mentioned, again, you, you're dropping huge fat questions in my lap. So that's why I'm taking all this time to answer them. Um, so with COVID, it's a brand new virus, okay? It's brand new. We're learning weekly what it's doing what its vectors are, uh, how it operates, what the symptoms are, who gets what symptoms at what age, what 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 do they call them, uh, preconditions. Um, and so this is a an evolving topic, okay? And I will tell you this, the only way to track that moving target is the invocation of the methods and tools of science. It's not the preacher, it's not the politician, it's not your neighbor, it's not Twitter, it's not Instagram, it's not TikTok. And so, yes, on the moving frontier, there's whatever is the latest experiment that shows. And you know something? I'm going to follow, because we don't have any other data yet, I'm going to move with that latest experiment. Okay, I guess I could wait until this verification. I could do that. But... If there are risk factors all swirling around me, I'm going to track the science. And then, yes, maybe a month later, they'll say, this experiment only worked for these people in this situation, and that's not your situation. Here's another experiment that's closer to you. Then I'll jump to that. I'm going to do that because the, the sources of science are – and if we think that uh, washing your hands matters for this virus, at some point, there was an experiment that hinted at that. And I'm, I'm good with that. So I'm going to wash my hands. How much overhead is that for me? Right. I'll wash my hands. And we learn about the masks later. Right. Not at the very beginning, but later. And so but you're going to say, I'm not going to listen to the scientists. 
who are you going to listen to? Who oh, you're again? Your politician, your TikTok feed, really, really. So, so people need to recognize that the methods and tools of science, with all of the fits and starts on the frontier, is the active invocation of the methods and tools that are exquisitely designed to determine what is objectively true. Period. And if if you didn't know that coming out of school. Uh, it's a problem with your school curriculum. That's why I don't beat people on the head when they think and feel this way. It's not their fault. I, it's not. It's not. And but, by the way, that line in the Pink Floyd, uh, we don't need no education. We don't need no thought control. <laughs> when I first heard that, that line, it was like, wow, that's a pretty illiterate sentence. <laughs> <laughs> So we don't so, need we uh, grammatically we don't need no education means we need it. Yeah, exactly. The double <laughs> negative says. <laughs> Neil, because it's such a treat to uh, have you here joining this conversation with us. Um, several of my colleagues had uh, some burning questions. I've I've oh, cut it down. Cool. <laughs> I've cut it down to just three. Okay, let me start. Are there aliens among us already? And I, I don't mean just uh, out there in the cosmos, in distant galaxies, here among us. And the reason well, they ask this ask, question- Have they visited or are they living among us? Oh, they're, if they're living they're, among us, they're doing a really good job because- You can't see them. <laughs> all life forms we have seen and found when analyzed have DNA in common with us. They have DNA at all, all life forms on earth and DNA in common. So if we found someone and we're able to then, if they did a 23andMe test, <laughs> and they say, wait, they don't have any DNA at all, that that would raise suspicions. So I, I don't see evidence for it. Okay, so. the, 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 this question stems from, uh, you know, the uh, the recent uh, release of all that footage from the Pentagon showing the uh, oh, UFOs. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, I'll comment directly on that. So a couple of things. First, the world right now is in possession of six last I checked these numbers, six billion smartphones. Each phone is capable of obtaining high resolution photos and video of anything around you. We are in a way crowdsourcing any possible alien invasion. Do you realize somewhere around a million human beings are airborne at any given moment? with a window sitting right next to them, okay? Plus, we have satellite imagery of every part of Earth's surface accessible at all times on the internet, okay? It seems to me that if we were being visited by aliens, it would show up a little better than a fuzzy tic-tac on a monochromatic video <laughs> seen by Navy pilots in restricted airspace. We, did you see the images of the, the spacecraft, the DART spacecraft that collided with, with the, the moonlit on purpose, okay, to try to deflect it? The last image it had of that uh, moonlit, you see rocks that are like meter-sized on it. So here we are, I have images of a moon of an asteroid 10 million miles away. I have images of rocks, stereoscopic images of rocks 
taken by an SUV-sized rover on the surface of Mars, aided by a helicopter. I have images of galaxies 14 billion miles away, 14 billion light years away, taken by a telescope parked a million miles from Earth. All that's happening now, and the best you have for me is this fuzzy monochromatic tic-tac image uh, on a bit. I'm thinking if we were being visited by aliens, it seems to me, I'm just putting it out there, we would not need congressional hearings to establish this fact. Okay, I'm going to so, have to take back a very disappointing answer to the colleague who asked that. But anyway, let's go to the second question. Do you believe in God? So if you type God into a Google search, if you go to the, the right page that compiles this, there's, there's like a, there's a list of about a thousand, maybe high hundreds, nearly a thousand gods that have been worshipped or otherwise praised in the history of human of civilization. Okay, there they are, all of them. Some religions have more gods than others, so they're more represented there. India has many, many uh, gods, and some gods are lesser gods than others, of course. But these are deities, okay? Non-human deities that have powers, okay? To say, do I believe in God? I might ask you, pick one of these and then ask me that question about that God, all right? And so, but that's, uh, that. why put you through that? Because <laughs> I pretty much know where you're headed. But I just want you to recognize that this thing about God and human and being human has been with us since probably cavemen, given certain burial rituals that we see manifested in their graves. So it's one thing to say there is an almighty supreme being that created the universe. Okay, that's one layer. There's another one to say there are many different gods that created the different aspects of the universe and control it. That's another one. Animism comes closer to that, where there's actually a spirit energy that move, there's a spirit of the brook and of the tree and of the mountain and of the clouds. So it's more distributed when you think about it that way. What I can tell you is if you want there to be a God, I would ask you, if there is a God, is there something about this world that would be true because of that? And I'd ask you to give me that list. And I would say, you know, this isn't true. It's an objectively false statement. Does that mean you're going to go back and say, I guess there isn't a God, or at least the God that you're worshiping in that context? Probably not. You'll either resist what I'm saying or you just ignore what I'm saying, which many religious people do. There are many testable things, statements made. In the Bible, for example, the Torah, the monotheistic Bible of the monotheistic religions, there is no reference to Earth as a spherical object, neither in that nor in the Christian Bible. All references to Earth have it as a flat disk or something with corners. There is no reference to it. And every rational interpretation of the opening passages of Genesis has Earth in the middle of all motion. Okay. We later find out none of that's true. So there's an entire community of apologists. The apologetics is a branch of most religions have them are people who go back to their holy text and reinterpret it in ways that do not conflict with the emergent objective truths of science. Okay, 
if that's a whole cottage industry and the reverse doesn't happen, I, I'm not a scientist saying, oh, this conflicts with the Bible. Let me reinterpret my data so that it does. That doesn't happen the other way. I would ask you, what is this God doing for you? Okay, that's what I would ask you. If, if the text has to be correct and it's objectively false in many ways, then what are you doing here? Okay, so now there are people who say, I don't care about its statements about the natural world. I care about the spirituality of it. Jesus is my savior no matter what. And I say in a free country where the expression of religion is protected, go right ahead. That is your personal truth. If Muhammad is the last prophet, Ed, that's your personal truth. No one is going to take that. I'm not going to take that from you. Okay? But if you're going to tell me Jesus is my personal Savior and, and God made this hurricane occur to destroy this island that doesn't have Christians on it, I'm going to say I have evidence that conflicts with that. <laughs> okay? Because here's a story, here's an earthquake that took out Lisbon, Portugal, all right, in 1755, I think it was. And one of the holiest cities in Europe, Christian, took out, killed 80,000 people. Okay? In the churches, right? They died in churches. In the churches. Yes, because it was, thank you, it was All Saints Day. And so in All Saints Day, it's very holy, and so you go, and most people are in churches. There's an earthquake followed by a tsunami. Whoever didn't die from the earthquake died in the tsunami. And what are the first buildings to collapse? The largest buildings. And what are the largest buildings in the 1700s? They are churches, okay? And so what I'm saying is to make claims about the physical world based on your religion, that's a very slippery slope. And the history of that exercise does not bode well for your piety. If your piety depends on accurate statements from your holy book written hundreds, if not thousands of years ago, about the nature of the physical universe. But religion as a source of your spirituality, I, this many people benefit from this. Religious rituals are some of the strongest binding forces we have as a culture. Comforting There force. are atheist Jews who will celebrate Seder, have a Seder meal, and leave a chair open for Elijah, because you're supposed to do that and unlock the front door. Do they really think Elijah's going to walk? <laughs> if a man walked in the door and sat down, they're calling the police. <laughs> you know this. But the ritual brings people together, even if they don't think of a literal God or anything among the, the, the Jewish atheists, of which there are many, by the way. So my point is, uh, to get back to your answer to your question, I, I'm open to there being a divine force operating in the universe. I have not seen evidence in support of it. And what I, anything I think is true is always in proportion to how much evidence there is in support of it. All right, amen to that. So the third question, it was originally supposed to be, is there life after death or some kind of existence after death? But let me rephrase the question to make it simpler for you. So. Uh, uh, you know, these are these are tough times with COVID and everything else. Healthcare systems have been affected, and uh, uh, quite a few of my colleagues uh, over the last year or so, and even recently, have lost uh, loved ones. Uh, some of my closest friends in the office, they've lost their parents very recently. So, uh, talking about life and death, I, I know you make a very eloquent and strong case for the beauty of life, the sheer privilege we have to be alive on this planet. Uh, what would you say to these uh, colleagues of mine who've lost their loved ones where it comes to death that might be 
offer some comfort to them, whether you believe in existence after life or not? Yeah, so uh, most religions that I've seen have some strong statements about what happens after death. It may be that historically, the promise of a blissful eternity was a motivation to influence your behavior in life. There was a way to sort of control, to create order in, uh, rather than chaos in, this, in the nascent civilizations that were being built. In other words, if you misbehave in life, then you are punished in death. And so that was pretty strong motive if you didn't want to listen to your, your friends or, or anyone else. Uh, God will punish you. So, so it's understandable why that would even exist, uh, just in terms of the history of civilization. Um, I can say that scientifically, it's it's not there is not any evidence for um, there being anything that happens to you after death that is any different from anything that quote happened to you before you were born. They're simply states of non-existence, right? Before you were born, you weren't saying, where am I? How come I'm not alive? Where, where am I? Or do I see other people? Oh, I see. No, you just, you just had no thoughts. There was no, ex you didn't exist, okay? After death, everything we know about your existence flows through your metabolism and the neuroelectrochemical signals in your brain. Uh, all evidence tells us it's not simply that there's no evidence of an afterlife. There is evidence that there isn't anything your brain is doing or anything else about your physical body, uh, which comes to us from neuroscience. Well, how about your soul? To their credit, 120 years ago, when x-rays were invented, they said, let's see if we can see the soul, leave the body. So people who were near death, they put them on x-ray tables, and as they died, they x-rayed them to see if some soul would come out of your body because x-rays could see through your body and no they found nothing okay so if there is a soul it has to be extra divine and not responsive to any scientific measurements and then your soul goes and lives for an eternity i i i, I can't say that is not true because there's no real testable way to get there that there's an invisible undetectable thing called a soul um, and so if people who want to believe that in the spirituality and then they'll see their loved ones, but I have interesting questions, I think are interesting questions. Uh, if you have a soul and you, and you led a good life and you went to heaven instead of hell and you see your loved ones and your deceased loved ones, if you, you see your grandparents, are they 85 <laughs> or are they 30, right? What is their state when you see them? All right. Did they... Are you seeing them in their prime or are you seeing them in their state of existence when they died? I have questions about that is, is all I'm saying. Um, and maybe you get to see them in whatever way you imagine them. Okay. Not necessarily and a physical like everyone, form with a certain age, right? It could just be. Yeah, uh... Exactly. And that's just how you interact with them. That, that could be so for sure. Uh, so point is, since I'm evidence driven and I don't have evidence of that, what I do instead is operate on what I know, and I know that I am alive, and I'm alive against stupendous odds, because m many more combinations of the human genome exist that can make humans that have then have ever been born.
There's about 100 billion people that have ever been born. There's countless quadrillions of people who could exist. So whatever hand life has been dealt you, even if you have some disease or congenital, whatever it is, you are alive. And yes, we will all die. Some unnatural deaths, others natural deaths. But as Richard Dawkins has said, has put it, we're the lucky ones who get to die. Because most people who could ever live will never even be born. That's a fact, objectively verifiable. And in the face of that information, brought to you by the methods and tools of science, in the face of that information, it is incumbent upon me, incumbent upon all of us, to live life to its fullest. To And ideally, if you want all the world around you to be a little better, then lessen the suffering of others within your means, within your abilities. Doesn't mean re-alter your life. Some people do that, of course. But if it's a little gesture you can do today that lifts the baseline of the world a little bit, then why not? So for me, rather than think about death, all the time people think about death, I think about life. Thanks for listening to this episode of Behind the Story. Don't forget the Talking Post video version of this interview is available on our YouTube channel, as well as scmp.com. While there, don't forget to also watch some of Talking Post's other episodes featuring guests like physicist Michio Kaku, former International Space Station Commander Chris Hatfield, and more. Take care, and bye for now.